The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have another really exciting show lined up for everyone tonight. As always, I am joined by uh, Genevieve. Genevieve, how are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm, I'm doing rather well. And as usual, I'm looking forward to the show. I, I know we've interviewed him before, but it's always exciting. Always. Here's a little fun fact. I was looking at my notes and whatnot, and... Uh, the last time we interviewed Brad Olson was on May 12th, 2018. And uh, that was literally a year ago. So it's really cool that we bring this full circle. We're definitely going to get into some pretty heavy stuff with Brad. And for those of you that maybe this is the first time you're hearing about him, Brad is uh, not just an author, but literally, in my opinion, he's a modern day explorer. And he's traveled all over the world and has chronicled his travels and a fascinating series of books where he uh, lists all the interesting places, all the sacred places around the world. And you can find those books on his website, CCC Publishing, as well as on Amazon. We've also had him on the show, as I mentioned earlier, to talk about his esoteric series. He currently has two books, Future Esoteric and Modern Esoteric. You can go back to our archives on the website and check out that interview because that was a really fascinating two hours of talk that we had with Brad. And before I forget, there was also that little video interview that we shot at last year's contact in the Desert conference and uh, we touched on uh, some of the uh, the topics that he uh, covers in his books and we know that he will be at this year's contact in the Desert conference so if you missed it last year I definitely urge people to go to contactinthedesert.com grab your tickets we're about two weeks away it starts May 31st through June 3rd Brad is one of the many amazing speakers that are going to be there you're going to have Graham Hancock, uh, Whitley Strieber, who we just interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the show just got posted. And we talked about some really crazy stuff with uh, Whitley. And if this is your type of thing, I definitely urge you to check it out. But you know what? I'm going to stop going on here because I want to bring Brad into the conversation and uh, really just hear about all of his uh, travels and adventures. So, Brad, can you hear us okay? I can hear you. Thanks for having me back on one year later. I know, right? It's really cool that we uh, we can do this again. And this time, for the folks that don't know, last time we spoke, you were just getting ready for this uh, major undertaking, which was to travel to South America, but not just South America. Your ultimate goal was to reach Antarctica. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was that the last continent that you needed to check off your list and you officially have traveled everywhere in the world? Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. I'm now in the Seven Continent Club. Wow. How does, how does that feel? <laughs> oh, it feels about the same as a year ago, but uh, certainly a wealth of experience and information, which I'm also going to be speaking about at Contact in the Desert and with you guys here tonight. But my two talks are uh, the mysteries of South America and the hidden anomalies of Antarctica. 
That sounds really fascinating. And uh, why don't you tell us uh, what was the purpose of your visit? Was it just to gather uh, information for, for future books? It was, indeed. Uh, know the saying, when life serves you lemons, make lemonade. Well, a little, little over a year ago, I had just lost my rent-controlled apartment in San Francisco because the building sold, and even though there is rent control protection, the owner moved in, anyone in my unit, there's not much you can do to, to fight it. So I thought, well, uh, I was about ready to buy a house in, up in Lake Tahoe, and that's where I still plan to move. And in a place that I was looking for in April just had closed. So I'm like, well, maybe this is a sign from the universe. I should go down and do South America and Antarctica and get on that Seven Continent Club. And that's what I did. Nice. And when you reached Antarctica, because it's such a remote place, obviously, we read about this location through books. That's how most of us learn about it. Most of us probably won't have the opportunity to go there. As someone who got a chance to go there, was there anything that you couldn't learn from a book once you were physically there? Yeah, sh certainly the, the views were amazing. The Palmer Peninsula region where I went to is very dramatic with mountains just towering straight up from the ocean, locked by glaciers on both sides. Uh, but really what was amazing is that the animals have no fear of humans down there. So you could get right up to like a mother and a penguin chick with your camera, and they're just kind of looking beyond you. They're like, what is, what, is this, what is this thing in my way? And uh, that was pretty amazing to see these huge penguin colonies, uh, seals on icebergs floating by, whale went right under our boat on one occasion, and uh, dolphins and penguins jumping out of the water as we we're leaving Ushuaia, Argentina out on the uh, Beagle Channel. But I'll tell you, the, the next day going on to the Drake Passage was uh, quite an ordeal, and I threw up for three days straight. It was very, very rough seas. I think that's... An amazing thing to hear and think about because if you consider it you know listen to what you're saying it seems that the fear of humans amongst non-human animals seems to be a, a fairly recent phenomenon i mean i'm not saying like yesterday or 100 years ago but essentially it shows you if something is left untouched and you know this is how animals would be on their own and us also being animals like this is how you would interact had humans not turned into what they have in the rest of the continents. Yeah, and I would imagine that animals at one time were never afraid of humans. It's just sort of in recent times uh, being hunted quite a bit and uh, moved off their land that they have started to become afraid of us. And let me ask you this, because obviously I feel like in the last couple of years, a lot of focus by those of us interested in, in some of these topics of, uh, you know, ufology and secret history and things like that. A lot of focus has been put on Antarctica, really. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of theories of what could be happening there. My first question is, is it possible for people to live there and thrive there in that climate? No, not really at all. It is extremely harsh climate and right around now they're in their four months of total darkness there are only a, a few hundred humans on the entire continent right now uh, all the bases and seasonal stations have cleared out and just a skeleton crew remains on a continent that is vast in size 
and distances are very great uh, between places. It is the fifth largest continent in the world. Twice the size of Australia is uh, half the size of Antarctica, and it's larger than Europe. It's about the size of the lower 48 in Canada combined. So that can give you a, a, an estimate of how large it is. And the fact that there are only a few hundred human beings on this entire continent right now uh, is quite a testament to how remote and also how inhospitable it is. So while humans can survive through the Antarctic winter, uh, it is quite a challenge. And you have to live through months of darkness, which uh, can do people's heads in if they're not uh, prepared for it. Right. And I just like to personally know, even though we're going to dive into very different stuff later on, but A, I'd love to know, was it cold? And how cold was it? Um, but B, more importantly, how did you feel psychologically? Did, did you feel remote, lost, um, scared? or, you know, completely at peace with nature? Mm. Yeah, a little bit of both. It was certainly scary when we were crossing the Drake Passage, and uh, we got a little bit of a late start the, the first day because we had to wait for high tide because our five-meter-long keel was in the mud. So we didn't actually leave till close to midnight on the first day, and because we were getting a late start, I, they knew that there was a storm out there, but they thought we could catch the tail end of it and it would propel us down there in very uh, fast speed, in which it did. We got down in 92 hours, um, which is pretty much record time for a sailboat. And I was on a 74-foot sailboat uh, with 13 others and myself. But when we hit it, it was very, very rough seas. And my girlfriend, Emily Infinity, she thought we were not going to make it. And we were holding hands. Uh, she was in the bunk above me. And I just said, look, Emily, I've sailed a bit with my dad. I, I know that unless the boat is taking on water, we're going to make it. We're going to ride through it. And indeed we did. And once we got to the islands and passages of Antarctica, it was very smooth sailing. But coming back, it took six days. Uh, we went via Cape Horn. We got to see the most famous Mariner uh, mountain in the world. It's almost like... All climbers want to see Mount Everest, and the sailors aboard were really insistent. We go by Cape Horn, and we got to see that. So that was worth it, but uh, 15 full days down there, and it was it was quite blissful. And to answer your other question, there were two days where we were actually in our bathing suits up on the deck. It was about 65 degrees. I even did the uh, polar plunge three times, uh, twice when we had a sauna at the Vernansky base, but one time, just because it was a warm day, jumped in real quick and got out. Sure, it was cold, but uh, it's doable. Wow. That's no, that, amazing. Yeah, it, that is amazing. <laughs> and sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, Brad, we're going to focus on a particular chapter of your book, Future Esoteric, and the chapter I'm referring to is titled The Fourth Reich in America. So I mm -hmm. think people already will kind of have an idea what we're going to cover here. However, before that, I want to share a story with you, and I just want to compare it to your experience, and, uh, and maybe you can tell me, yeah, if any of that kind of rings a bell, but about a year ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I'll I, I leave names out for everyone's uh, uh, privacy, but I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was telling me that a friend of his, uh, who is a pretty popular musician, 
he is really interested in all these topics. But I'm sure, as you know, a lot of the people in the entertainment industry and things like that, they tend to tread carefully on these topics in order to, you know, not alienate any part of their fan base, et cetera, et cetera. This uh, particular individual has a big interest in these topics, and apparently he self-funded this trip to Antarctica because, as I alluded to earlier, uh, we've heard all the, the speculation and the theories that there might be a secret German base, the entrance to the inner Earth, you know, a number of things that we're going to touch on in here in the next uh, hour and a half or so. And from what he told me, and I found this really interesting, from what he told me, it's not like you can just, you know, buy a plane ticket and land in Antarctic International Airport, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little yeah. bit more complicated than that. So he it had, is. first of all, get himself down to the southernmost point in, in the American continent, then charter a boat, and apparently he even made arrangements with one of the uh, U.S. outposts in Antarctica that he was allowed to visit. And he says that the whole time he was on this boat on his way over there, the uh, chaperones, if you will, he felt like they were distracting them. Like they would be looking out one window and then they would approach, they'd be approached and be like, oh, why don't you follow me and look out this way? And look, we have this thing here. And once they got on land, he says that they were walking through this place and he felt that a lot of the walls didn't look solid or permanent, almost like they were put there to block something else. It was definitely a very strange tale. I, I didn't know what to make of it. I don't know how it was for you to make this trip happen, but is there any type of military presence in Antarctica that you could see? And how easy is it for somebody that decides, hey, I want to visit this place to go? Great questions. And uh, in my book, The Fourth Reich in America, it also includes South America, and it also includes the new Schwabenland area of Antarctica. So going down there, I was very interested in all these subjects and the possible craft under the ice, uh, antediluvian civilizations that may harken back to Atlantis, megalithic buildings, in fact, that uh, Corey Good speaks of, and uh, pyramids that are poking out through the ice. And everyone I asked if they knew anything about Antarctica was along these lines of questioning. Now, do you know if your uh, musician friend, did he go to Queen Maudland or New Schwabenland? You the, know, the area claimed by the Nazis in the Third Reich? I honestly do not have that information. Genevieve, here uh, is Well, I think the Im implication was like, yes, because they weren't as subtle as saying, you know, hey, look out this other window. They said, you are not allowed to look out the left side. Stay mm. on the right side of the boat. You're allowed to witness that. But anything on the left side, this is private sort of thing. And I mean, what are you going to do? Say, oh, but I want to. <laughs> So, yeah, the implication was there was definitely something there that they absolutely could not see and witness. Interesting. And he couldn't find out what that was? 
I could probably get the information and uh, yeah, I'll be happy to share with you uh, yeah, later on because I think that would be interesting to know. Because when I'm in your show one year from today, we can talk about that. Right. <laughs> we'll make it a one year anniversary. <laughs> Every year we'll build on this. Yeah. We'll, give you, we'll send you a teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> to, so to answer your other question about uh, the militarization of Antarctica, in the late 1950s, the U.S., was participating in Project Argus, and they were actually detonating high-altitude nuclear bombs in the Southern Ocean area. Now, it, it is still a classified program, and it's not entirely sure where those nukes were going, because some think it was in response to Operation High Jump, in which Admiral Byrd and his armada were decidedly defeated two months into their six-month expedition and hightailed it back uh, with much loss of life, all of their aircraft destroyed, including one ship called the USS Murdoch that uh, reportedly was confronted with these craft that came out of the water, and this is off the coast of New Schwabenland, and had a high-tech laser, and this is 1946, 1947, sliced it right in half. They couldn't shoot this craft down, and Admiral Byrd, on his way back, uh, was quoted in a Chilean newspaper that we are confronting an enemy that have the ability to fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. Well, there's still no craft that's known today that could fly pole to pole with incredible speed. So we're obviously talking about either backward-engineered technology that the Third Reich was certainly working on at the Skoda Works in what is today the Czech Republic, or perhaps they had allied with another ET race that uh, was there to protect them. Now, after uh, the experiments with Argus, uh, with nuclear bombs, it was such an outrage to the rest of the world that, that the Antarctica Treaty was forged, and it was ratified in 1962 making the entire continent a biosphere, just a protected area below the Antarctica Circle and made it so that uh, it was open to all, it was open for research, and it was not to be a militarized zone. Now, if some secret military forces are operating down there, they're doing it illegally. I'm not saying that that's not happening, but it would be frowned upon by any nation who caught whiff of uh, any kind of maneuvering. Now, to the area of New Schwabenland, or Queen Maudland, as it would be appearing on most globes, the best way to approach it is from South Africa. That is directly south of South Africa. Just like if you're going to the South Pole or McMurdo Station, another the biggest base in Antarctica run by the Americans, you come in via New Zealand. Whereas... The Palmer base, which I visited, you come in via South America and you go down the Palmer Peninsula. So it really depends on where this musician friend came in from. Now, if he was sailing from South America, I'd say it's highly unlikely that he did go to New Schwabenland just because the distances are so vast and you would be much better approaching it from South Africa, as I mentioned. Now, as I was doing my research on uh, Antarctica, and I've been doing this now for well over a year, uh, I was following GPS leads, going places uh, with Google Earth, and I did find, quite fascinating, that there is something like an under-ice craft. 
at the Conan base. It is a seasonal base, which is still run by Germany. The Germans never did leave this region of Antarctica. Their year-round base is called Neumeyer. And the region where uh, supposedly the New Berlin base was, point two eleven, base 211, is this area called the Schumacher Ponds, which are these geothermically active ponds. They never freeze, and you can actually drink the water. It's fresh uh, water. And so when it was discovered by the pilot named Schumacher, uh, it was presumed that this would be the location. Now, what I talk about in my presentation, Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica, is that Antarctica is the most volcanically active continent in the world. There are 91 active volcanoes there, and we went and visited one of them uh, called Deception Island. And this area that the Germans claimed had also has a fault line going through it and these geothermically warm ponds. And we all know what you can do with geothermal energy. You can, you can heat things, you can warm your base with it. It is a form of free energy that can be tapped into. So if your friend happened to go there, I'd be very impressed because that is in my top three places that I would like to investigate. And I may have the opportunity to even go back to Antarctica next year uh, with a producer who has contacted me that does some work with National Geographic. Uh, and we would go via New Zealand to McMurdo and then try to go to the South Pole and the Beardmore Glacier, which is this other paranormal hotspot I've heard a lot about. Let me just kind of take it back a little bit because I think that was definitely a lot for, for some folks to wrap their head around. But let's kind of go back to why do people believe that the Germans reached Antarctica and, and set up some type of a, a base there uh, back then? I know that Adolf Hitler and, and some of the higher up officials in the Nazi uh, party had some type of interest in the occult, correct? Oh, absolutely. And it went all the way back to just after World War I when the Vril Society was formed in Berchtesgaden, Germany. And that is the location of Hitler's eagle nest. It was a very occult-orientated area of Germany. I've been there. Uh, it's incredibly beautiful. But uh, they had found some psychic mediums one named Maria Orsic, who was able to communicate with the Aldebaran star system and telepathically download blueprints that created uh, free energy and, and very advanced technological uh, devices that was employed by the Vril Society, which then became part of the Thule Society. And in fact, Himmler and Hitler himself and several others that were high-ranking Third Reich officers were involved with this. So really, the Third Reich of Nazi Germany is deeply entrenched in the cult from the very earliest days of its formation. Now, Maria Orsic, or uh, Genevieve actually was correcting my pronunciation. How, uh, it's, what was it? <laughs> well, okay, I'm not that good at, I believe it is Croatian. That's where her father was from. But I, I believe it's more like Orsish. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I've heard a lot about her, but I guess I, I feel like I haven't found any, uh, uh, at least personally, what solid evidence do we have that this person even existed? Well, there are pictures of her. Mm -hmm. She's very beautiful. She had very, very long hair. 
theater mediums believe that uh, growing their hair long would help them with their telepathic communication. That part, I don't really know if there's much veracity to that claim, but you can see pictures of her. Do an internet search for images with her name and she'd pop right up. Uh, so certainly she existed. Now, the veracity of the claims that she was telepathically downloading these high-tech uh, blueprints, now that, that could be something that uh, could be called in question. Nonetheless, the Third Reich did obtain some very high technology, whether it was their brilliant scientists or that they had help from those above, as some of their scientists, including Werner von Braun and Hermann Oberth, whose quote it was, said that we did have help from those space brothers above, uh, would lead you to believe that they had some kind of intersection with ETs, including uh, getting some of this high technology that their engineers could then backward engineer and, and put into practical craft. And of course, at the end of World War II, nothing was found, not the Hanabu craft. They even had another kind of craft called the Vril craft. And of course, Daigle the Bell. None of this was ever found by the Allies when they got to the Skoda Works in what is today Czech Republic. The presumption is they got it out of there. They got it out of there in 44, the beginning of 45, in the Fuhrer convoy U-boats and got it down to Antarctica, to Base 211, or to South America, where they have purchased enormous tracts of land. And I was tracking some of these areas down south of Santiago, Chile, other ones in Argentina, where some mystery buyer just bought up hundreds and hundreds of acres of land and some of these massive ranches down there, which are still owned today and still very much private property and off limits. So the, the Fourth Reich could very well still be in existence today. Wow. You know, before we, we continue, just really quick, I know that one of the questions that a lot of people have when this subject comes up is, well, if they had such advanced technology and advanced weapons, why did they lose the war? At the same time, I wonder... Did they lose the war? Really? I'm, and I know we have this discussion quite often. And I feel like it was almost one of those things of timing. And I don't know if these things that we have read about and research are true. It almost feels like if they had just those five more years, ten more years, something else would have happened. The outcome would have been We different. might all be speaking German. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they were very, very close. And they had uh, uh, quite a bit of advanced weapons. But they knew that they were going to lose probably the beginning of 44. And to go ahead and, and nuke New York City or something would have been the total obliviation of Germany. And keep in mind, Germany surrendered at the end of World War II on VE Day. The Third Reich has never surrendered. They just went underground and became the third power. We often think of the Cold War being the Soviet bloc versus the NATO bloc. Well, there happened to be a third power, and this is the Fourth Reich in exile, which became more of an intelligence network uh, that was also very empowered with uh, the riches that were pulled out of Europe. And there are still tons of gold bullion and and priceless paintings, artifacts that have never been recovered after World War II. And then, as I was mentioning, these large tracts of lands were being purchased. They had a lot of allies in South America, and I went and uh, visited a few places where 
Adolf Hitler had faked his death and had been seen and uh, survived the war and lived until uh, the early 1960s, as well as Martin Bormann, the money man, the number two in charge at the very end of the war, was seen all over South America into the 1950s. So those two survived. It's very well likely that this uh, Fourth Reich was a power in the world, but completely underground and acting that way. Now, before, uh, because that's something that I definitely want to touch on here in just a few, but you were talking about, you know, nothing was recovered at the end of the war as far as some of this high technology. I did find interesting that the one thing they did find was what was called the Horton, I think it was like HO-229, which was like that single wing aircraft that looked eerily similar to what later was designed and built here in the U.S. and became known as the B-2 Spirit Bomber. Or, you know, it looks like a stingray flying in the sky. Do you think that that was just kind of like a throwaway aircraft? I mean, it seemed kind of like a random thing to be found. And then the U.S. has this eerily similar aircraft up in the air a few decades later. I mean, is that how advanced Nazi Germany was? That they would give us their throwaway, yeah. Right. That's how advanced they were. Uh, and that's why to make such a claim that they had help from the Space Brothers from above is not so far-fetched. Because they were so far advanced that anything the Allies had, uh, as Guinevere said, if they had five or ten more years, we'd all be speaking German and they probably would have won. And they were very close to having a nuclear bomb too, which could have really tipped the tides. You know, they were always very fascinated with these wonder weapons. And... Uh, It's, a, it's an absolute fact that many Nazi scientists, uh, espionage, and spy masters like Reinhard Galen came over here in Operation Paperclip, where these Nazis, if they were notorious war criminals, were sometimes given new identities and new jobs. They helped start the CIA. They started Nassau. And they started a, a lot of other spy agencies, including the uh, NSA. So there, there are a lot of tentacles that were placed within our own uh, higher echelon of uh, intelligence and high technology. And the fact that if they were discovered by Admiral Byrd in 1946-47 in Operation High Jump, which is still a classified uh, operation, you cannot get the full details on what happened down there. Uh, that they were routed and then they struck some kind of deal with the Fourth Reich and said, okay, we'll let you operate because we know that you have high technology, but uh, we're not going to come after you in South America. And only Adolf Eichmann was captured by the Israelis in Buenos Aires and taken back to Israel, put on trial and, and executed. But all of them escaped. And it's really interesting. We were like flipping through The Lonely Planet in Bolivia, we we're trying to find, hey, what's in this next little town we go to? And it was uh, Claus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, wow. escaped to Bolivia with a new identity, and he lived behind a uh, lumber mill, and he died a natural death. You know, the notorious uh, Nazi war criminals that, that got to live their whole life, including Joseph Mengele, who did those incredibly brutal pictures on twins and Auschwitz and so forth. I mean, it's just amazing that, that these characters were allowed to uh, live without justice. It's really a travesty, in fact. And 
actually that was going to be my next question and I know we're, we're speaking more in terms of um, history and facts as far as we know but what is your opinion in terms of the moral ethical background of this because philosophically I think a lot of people would be against exactly what you're saying um, you know taking in these Nazis and saying hey look we're going to give you a new life it's fine come over and help us. <laughs> Yeah, and of course there was the big build-up in the Cold War with the Soviet bloc, and they became the new enemy, and we needed to beat them technologically. So it kind of makes sense that the mentality at the time was, hey, take what we can get out of this very advanced German economy and war machine and use it to our own means. But the fact that they became so infiltrated in these high levels of government became quite an alarm to those who were paying attention, including uh, Forrestal, who uh, was suicided out of Bethesda Hospital because he was getting a little too close to the truth. And, uh, and there were others who, who also died as a result of uh, trying to expose what these people could do and how they got away in South America, too. I want to backtrack a bit here uh, to just go back and talk a little bit more about the uh, origins of, or at least what set these things into motion, because I feel that uh, definitely the occult had a, a big role here. And one of the things I always found interesting when, when I researched the, this topic is that there were two secret societies involved, and I, I believe you mentioned them already, the, the Frill Society and the Thule Society. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what was different about each? What was their role within the Nazi party? And um, also, uh, I know I'm asking a lot here, but the, the last question in that regard is, I've noticed that a lot of the symbols used in Nazi Germany are derived from runes. So if you can also tell us just what runes are and how they uh, became part of the Nazi imagery. Yeah, very fascinating. My sister companion book to future esoteric called modern esoteric i have a whole chapter on sacred symbols and runes are basically an alphabet that were developed by the vikings uh and of course the the nazis had this notion that they had this aryan ancestry including those of the the viking uh, ancestry in scandinavia and were very uh akin to the legends of a hollow earth, which the Vikings also spoke of, way up north in the land called Thule. Uh, it's interesting that in uh, the southern hemisphere, not too far away from Antarctica, is southern Thule Island, which is also the reported location where the black goo comes from. That's a whole other discussion, but I do include that in my Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica talk. Uh, uh, where Southern Thule Island is, and it's so ironic that it has that name. But uh, the, the, when I was traveling in India, Frank, I, I tell you, I saw the swastika all over the place, and I'm like, what is going on here? But clearly engraved in temples that were very, very old, obviously the Nazis stole this symbol. Mm -hmm. They took it, they flipped it around, and they put it a little bit uh, at an angle. But it's a, basically, it's a representation of the cycles of life, reincarnation, um, the four ages of, of humans. And it's an age-old symbol. It's a Tibetan Thangka symbol. 
And the, the Third Reich had a very close association with Tibet as well. They were doing exploratory parties of the Tibetan plateau in the 1930s uh, when the bunker that Hitler presumably killed himself at was discovered. There was a room of all these Asian men laying around in a circle, a perfect circle with their feet in the middle. And it wasn't because uh, <clears throat> one of the Soviet soldiers had been from Siberia and recognized them as Tibetan, that they knew that these were Tibetan officers wearing full Nazi regalia when they were discovered and ritually committed suicide when the Russians were moving in. So they had recruited uh, psychic and very advanced Tibetan uh, mystics to join them. And this is, again, part of this uh, occult fascination that the upper echelon of the Nazi party was utterly obsessed with. Now, if you could also tell me about the difference between the, the real society and the Thule society, because those are two names that seem to pop up every time this topic gets discussed. And there's actually a third called the Ananurbe Society. Oh. Well, it started with the Vril. They were post-World War One in a hunting lodge in Birch's Garden where they were doing seances, as we would call it today, and uh, telepathically communicating with the people of the Aldebaran star system. And at that time, Germany was still very advanced and they were a peaceful country right after World War I. And so even though the Aldebaran are benevolent ETs, they felt that this is one group on earth that we could trust with free energy technology and other technologies that they were giving to them telepathically. Uh, it wasn't until the Thule Society then absurped the Vril Society. It was still very much underground, very much uh, invitation only, so to speak. And in fact, uh, Hitler was actually a spy, came in to see what they were up to and then became so fascinated with it, became a, a firm believer and member of the Thule Society. Then uh, in the lead up to World War II, the Ananurbe Society was the first and last state-sponsored, psychic, and occult-based uh, branch of government. The only time a government in the Western world has advanced these technologies and this information in such a way that it was a known branch. Uh, so the Ananurbe Society, was they were collecting the books, they were doing uh, the expeditions, they were looking for these artifacts such as the spear of destiny which the first thing hitler did when he annexed austria was went to the museum and got the spear of destiny and that was supposed to be the spear that uh, pierced jesus christ up on the cross and any any army that possessed it would be undefeatable so they were totally fascinated with these kind of relics so in the movie raiders of the lost ark when they're doing a dig in egypt is very true they were all over uh, the world looking for this stuff, including <clears throat> Rennes-le-Chateau in southern uh, France, all over the place, trying to find uh, any kind of artifact that would give them that edge, that occult knowledge uh, to defeat their enemies. So their, their belief was 
that they would be technologically trained and superior physically because they would be outnumbered with uh, these bigger armies, but that they could win because they were so much better trained and that they had some of these uh, occult secrets tucked up their sleeve. You know, it's funny you mentioned that movie because that's one of my dad's favorite movies. And I remember the one of the first times I watched it, I think he told me that he believed that there was some truth to that screenplay. And uh, the older I got and the more I researched these topics, I realized what he meant. And yeah, for anybody that hasn't seen it, definitely check it out. It's, um, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting little movie there. Uh, not that little. It's actually a pretty big movie. <laughs> But uh, let me ask you this before, I know we're, we're going to be heading to the break here pretty soon, and, and I hope this question is not too big, but the real society seem to have been looking not just for alternate energy sources, but actually clean energy. And this technology of clean energy that the Nazis were, or the real society, I should say, was trying to, to develop with the aid of these blueprints that they were receiving through uh, Maria. Our engines now, they work under the, uh, the, uh, the idea of uh, explosion, right? We create a mini explosion in a car engine and, you know, boom, there goes the engine and we move the car. However, it seems that this new technology worked under the, the concept of implosion, which meant that nothing needed to be destroyed to create this, this energy. That said, it's such a paradox that this clean technology was trying to be attained by the Nazis who, on the other hand, were causing massive destruction, destructions of lives, property, etc. How does that make sense, I guess? Well, they, they weren't really the agents of destruction until the war began in 39. Uh, they were feeling like they were getting uh, closed in on all sides, not to justify anything that they did because... Any, any war is atrocities being committed. Right. But they, they kind of felt that they were goaded into the war and then to attack Russia. And then basically they had a war on two fronts. And a small country like Germany cannot sustain that for too long. Unless, of course, they had these wonder weapons, which they put tremendous amount of resources into developing. And it's very interesting that as soon as the war was over, uh, a deal was struck to get the uh, uranium that was used in the Manhattan Project that eventually became the nuclear bombs that were used on Japan. So they were remarkably close, probably had even done the first underground nuclear testing uh, somewhere in the Third Reich before the war concluded. But knowing that they um, really couldn't stop the tide, they sued for peace and got this high technology out. And that's where I find the trail to be very fascinating is what happened to all that high technology and could it have gone to Antarctica and South America? And I would say in my research, the answer is yes. Brad, we're going to take a quick break. Because when we come back, I definitely want to continue our conversation. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. The idea, the possibility, the very real possibility that there is some breakaway civilization that made it to Antarctica. And like you mentioned, Germany surrendered, the Third Reich didn't. So I definitely want to come back and dive in. Genevieve, 
last one before the break. Yeah, I, I do just want to make it clear. As a quick side note, a handful of nuclear bombs were indeed so-called implosion-triggered bombs. So it's interesting that there are different types of atomic bombs. And the Fat Man, as an example, this one was dropped on Nagasaki. It was one of these um, implosion-triggered bombs. Genevieve. Just so we have that in mind. <laughs> Genevieve coming in hot with the facts. But Brad, would you be so kind to just hang on the line? When we come back, we're going to continue tackling this topic? Absolutely. You bet. Awesome. So don't go away. I can't wait to get back to this conversation because Brad is definitely the guy that has this wealth of information. And I highly, highly recommend people grab his books if they haven't already. Uh, cccpublishing.com. Check that website out. You can find some books there. Uh, we're going to come back and, like I said, continue this conversation. This is West of the Rockies on the Independent FM, WTRradio.com. I'm here. Genevieve is here. And Brad Olson is here. And we're going to be coming just right back. West of the Rockies with Frank. <laughs> Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to the second hour of West of the Rockies. You like how I built suspense there? It's an old radio trick. So, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm tense up here. <laughs> As you can tell, we're having a great time tonight. A uh, little bit of uh, back announcing. Uh, you just heard some uh, Foo Fighters uh, rising from the ashes of Nirvana. Dave Grohl, drummer for Nirvana, formed the Foo Fighters. And that's from their debut album by the same name. That was I'll Stick Around. 1995 that came out. And who would have thought that the drummer from Nirvana would end up fronting one of the biggest bands in the world with a name like the Foo Fighters, which is quite appropriate. I want to ask Brad about that in a minute. Before that, we heard, of course, Ramstein with uh, the song uh, Deutschland. Definitely check out that album. It's going to be coming out here pretty soon, May 17th. First album in 10 years. Such a great band. I went to see them back in, I think it was like 2002, 2003 in a tiny little venue here in L.A. called the Shrine Auditorium. If I remember correctly, I think that was a, a Masonic Hall at one point. I don't know if it still is. I just remember thinking, like, we're all going to burn to death because they had flames shooting, like, 50 feet in the air. And I think the roof was only 30 feet high. Anyways, my point being is, if you ever get a chance to check out Ramstein live, definitely do so. It's definitely worth the money. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. That's at WOTR Radio. The website is WOTRradio.com. And of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WOTR Radio, um, as well as uh, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and a whole host of other uh, platforms that you can get our content on. Of course, I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uway on Twitter, and uh, she's here Thursday nights hosting her show, No Idea Flavors, Music, Film, Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more. Now, that being said, let me bring Brad Olson back on the line. 
Brad, why don't you tell people real quick where they can find you on social media, where can they order your books and all that good stuff? If you want to know more about me and the projects I'm working on, bradolson.com, B-R-A-D-O-L-S-E-N.com, one word. Uh, CCC Publishing, Three C's Publishing, one word. If you want to see the books I've written and the other authors that I publish, this is my business. been running it for 25 years. And uh, all books that uh, are bought through CCC Publishing by me, I can sign copies for as they go out. So uh, best place to buy them, cccpublishing.com if you're interested. And uh, Facebook, Esoteric Book Series. Also, the name of our YouTube channel, I'm now posting all of the chapters of Future Esoteric that have just been released as an audiobook, and I recorded them when I was doing Facebook Live, and I'm now posting one chapter a day while I have time to get them up, and also I'm speaking Thursday, May 16th at IONS in Petaluma, California, from 6 to 8.30 p.m., doing both of my talks, Mysteries of South America and the Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica. Free talk, uh, IONS is Noetic Sciences that was founded by astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Really uh, an honor to be asked to speak there in the auditorium. And then, of course, at the end of the month, uh, Contact in the Desert. We'll also be doing both of my presentation and speaking on uh, several panels as well so a lot coming up yeah no a lot of fun stuff absolutely and uh before we get back into the conversation uh we just heard during the break a song by the foo fighters now that term was actually coined during world war ii to describe these weird orbs i don't know if i could call them crafts why don't you tell me a little bit of what you know about the foo fighters yeah that, that is a fascinating uh, little antidote of World War II. And the Foo Fighters, yeah, they were plaguing the Allied pilots, not shooting them down, which if they were German technology, they probably would have been shooting down the Allied planes, but just kind of flying alongside them. And as you said, they were orbs, uh, probably plasma light orbs, which incidentally, that is what is reported that creates the genuine crop circles as well, mm -hmm. are balls of light, plasma balls that just come down within minutes and just just create the massive crop circles to twice the size of a football field in minutes and they, they have been captured on video my friend uh, patty greer has made several films some of which shows some of this exclusive footage of crop circles being made so i would say they're probably in the same category of the Foo Fighters, these plasma balls that are just kind of probing and watching to see uh, what the humans are up to, basically, uh, in the context of war. Sometimes they'd be going out and bombing cities, and the Foo Fighters would be going right alongside them. So if they were German design, I think they would have had more of an offensive position. But as far as I know, not a single plane was ever taken down by them. They were just more of an observation-type phenomenon. One of the things that I wanted to get into was the uh, there were definitely different branches to the Nazi party. And one of them that seemed to be quite involved in this stuff was the SS. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of theorizing as far as what their actual role was or how, how 
deeply ingrained they were in some of these occult activities. What can you tell us about this quite infamous organization within the Nazi party? Right. Well, it was certainly the best and the brightest only need to apply, as well as being very physically fit. And they were very occult orientated. Uh, Heinrich Himmler was the head of the SS. And as we mentioned in the first hour, he was also in the Thule Society and had a keen interest in the occult. They had acquired this castle called Wee Wieselberg in uh, central Germany. And it was the center for any occult rituals, uh, bringing in new SS members. It was going to be, they're going to put in uh, lakes all around it and make it like the, the center of New Germany. Uh, they never did accomplish that. But uh, the Wee Wieselberg Castle is still there. And actually, I'm researching this for my third and final book called Beyond Esoteric, The Ultimate Journey, will be uh, a subject in that next uh, esoteric guide, which will come out next year in 2020. Gotcha. And I know that it was definitely a very, uh, I mean, it's, it almost sounds like science fiction, what we're talking about here. At the beginning of the, of the show, you, you alluded to some craft, or not some, I mean, it seems like most of the craft, because uh, we don't know for certain if, the Allies got a hold of any of this technology. I know a lot of people speculate that between Russia and the U.S., they kind of divvied up the scientists and some of the technology and kept it secret and worked on it in the respective uh, countries and programs. But what evidence do we have that points to all of these advanced aircraft being rushed out of Germany and, and hidden in places as remote as Antarctica and South America? And, and those projects were the most high-tech of all. The ones that weren't so high-tech, like the rocketry program, which Werner von Braun was a rocket scientist at Penamunde, and he invented the, the V-2 rocket, which rained down on London in the waning years of the war. Werner von Braun should have been on trial for war crimes with right. the other top-ranking Nazis uh, in Nuremberg. But instead, he got a new job in Nassau and was responsible for the Mercury and the Apollo rocket program. So they seem to have given us sort of the lower priority high technology that still had to run off of uh, solid fuel boosters and uh, were expendable. Not like the Schauenberg or... Uh, craft where he was using what we would term as UFOs, disc-shaped craft, and then rendering the gravity all around them, which uh, I describe in Future Esoteric to Fly a UFO, telling the reader some basic principles of how UFOs fly. And the Germans knew this in the 1930s. Uh, if they had not won the war, uh, Schaumberger would have probably been up there with Albert Einstein as one of the greatest scientific minds of the 20th century. But because they lost, his history is written by the victors, they uh, were resigned to, uh, to <laughs> a footnote of history instead. Yeah, because it seems like they, they had amazing technology and like these Foo Fighters, that they behave like, like drones. I, I remember the reading that they were these unmanned aircraft and we're talking 1930s, 1940s. 
and to have those capabilities, uh, you know, it definitely blows minds, right? Oh, for sure. How, how they acquired it is really the big question, uh, whether it was from ETs or backward engineered technology. And it's probably the answer is a combination of both. They did have a crash retrieval in the Black Forest of Germany in the 1930s. And probably even more significant, there was a crash in northern Italy in the 1930s that was much more of an intact craft. And Mussolini allowed the Nazi scientists to come down and collect that craft and bring it back to Germany. So they were actively involved in backward engineering uh, since at least the mid-1930s. Like I said, it really blows my mind. Before I move on, this is just a general question. Is it something in the geography? I mean, how could all of this happen in this one part of the world in such a, I mean, really, in a historical context, in a short amount of time? Germany has always been on the cusp of technology. They're incredible engineers. I, I'm half German myself. My grandmother was from Potsdam. Her, her, I should say her parents were from Potsdam, Germany. It was pretty well destroyed in World War II. But my grandmother is RH negative. And oh, wow. my family is also RH negative. And then this is a very interesting thing, too, that the northern European populations have some of the highest incidence of RH negative uh, blood in, in all the world. Uh, Asia is basically devoid of RH negative. And even though 15% of the world population is RH negative, it's highly concentrated in these northern European areas. And that is what the Third Reich determined to be this Aryan race. And they were very well aware of this, this very strange anomaly of RH negative blood. And what that means is RH stands for rhesus, uh, which is a monkey. So basically 85% of us have RH positive blood, meaning there is a link to the lower primates. But RH negative means there isn't any. That uh, Darwin's theory that we all evolved uh, <clears throat> up from uh, the great apes, well, it wouldn't apply to RH negative people because they don't have any of that in their blood. What also makes it very fascinating is that a RH negative mother, such as my grandmother, who married an RH neg uh, positive man, uh, if their blood were to mix with their children, could have devastating results. And in fact, my uncle Douglas died at five days old because my grandmother's blood corrupted him and he died prematurely is what they called a blue baby. It's uh, the blue uh, antibodies fight it off. This happens in no other animals. So it's kind of another one of those little things that make the Germans a little bit special. Uh, and they knew that and they, they felt that they were not like the inferior races that they, um, often were very outspoken against. So maybe this is what galvanized the people. We've often seen those enormous rallies where it's like the whole country would come to Nuremberg and, and go to these, these massive rallies, hundreds and thousands of people uh, were just all so into it. And it's it's been a fascination with historians since. It's like, how did Hitler and this party get so much positive uh, energy from people who would basically work for nothing and, and sacrifice themselves at war for this ideology? 
So it, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's certainly a factor in how this small country, Germany, was able to uh, get so much power and technology and wreak so much havoc in the Western world during World War II. This is an incredibly, um, at times, touchy subject, but essentially what it means in terms of, you know, RH, positive and negatives, is that that group of people, they were only able most of the time to produce their own bloodline because everyone that, you know, didn't match their bloodline would die off. The offspring just wouldn't be able to be born and supported by the, you know, by the mother. And that is a scary and incredibly strong type of evolutionary effect, which hasn't been seen in many other places of the world. That's correct. Actually, the highest incidence of RH negative people are in the Basque region of Europe between on the Pyrenees mountains area between uh, France and Spain. And there are upwards of uh, 25% of them are RH negative, as well as the Celtic people of Ireland and Northern Europe, as well as the blue-eyed and fair-skinned and multicolored hair people of the Atlas Mountains of Morocco in Africa have a huge high incidence of RH negative blood. So it's these pockets of RH negative blood that lead me to believe that these people came from somewhere, probably like the descendants of Atlantis or perhaps some kind of connection with uh, our space brothers in outer space that Herman Oberus said they uh, got their technology advancements from. And essentially, it's the same concept of two very similar animals that are able to interbreed, such as a horse and a donkey that produces a mule, but that mule is not going to be able to reproduce in itself. I know it was kind of a side point, but it's the same concept. No, that's a great point. And I use that example all the time that you can interbreed, but sometimes there are drastic results. Like you said, in the case of a mule, they're sterile and they cannot reproduce themselves. In the case of RH negative blood people, it could have tragic results with the mother killing off its own offspring, which really goes counter to evolution. It should never happen that way, uh, but it does. And, and I would even go one step further and say that it suggests that humans are actually two species coexisting, much like a horse and a donkey are. And the proof is in the RH negative blood. That's a very fascinating subject. I know we have discussed it in other shows uh, that, that we have done, and I definitely urge people to look into that because it sounds, I remember the first time I heard about this, it was unbelievable, but the science is there. Now, Brad, just to kind of move, move this ship along, we all know pretty much what happened during World War II and the defeat of Germany, not necessarily the defeat of the Third Reich. Again, as you mentioned earlier, there were higher-ups that managed to escape the fate of some of the others that, you know, had to go to trial and be executed for their atrocities. However, it seems that Hitler and some other officials managed to get out of Germany along with some of this high-tech weaponry that they had been working on. And I remember watching, uh, I think it was a a documentary where they interviewed some folks that are obviously a bit older now, but they claim to have seen 
German submarines arrive in the dead of night to Argentina and a number of Nazi officials disembarked and amongst them was Hitler. And they took residence in one of these remote areas. I mean, you know, Argentina, I've never been, but it, it, I've seen plenty of videos and photos. And it, there's these beautiful, lush landscapes and just uh, just these magnificent views. And it seems that they manage, as you said, live out their lives out there. What do we have as far as evidence besides the testimony of these people? They mind you, um, I don't have the clip to play but they sound quite credible when you hear them uh tell this story yeah there, there's quite a bit of evidence and i did spend several uh two months in argentina particularly uh on the trail of these escaped nazis i went to the uh eden hotel in la falda argentina uh just in the hills outside of cordoba and it's remarkably similar to Bavaria and its German restaurants and German uh, architecture. And I took a tour of the Eden Hotel and Hitler was very good friends with the Eichhorns who owned the Eden Hotel, very wealthy couple. Uh, and during the tour, I was tipped off that the uh, FBI has an archive called The Vault. Same with the CIA has a area called the vault that you can go and look at documents pertaining to Hitler and other high-ranking Third Reich officers escaping to South America. There's actually over 200 documents on the FBI vault site pertaining to Hitler and others who have escaped, including uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was quite upset with the fact that they were not pursuing these guys. Uh, but that goes back to this uh, secret deal that was probably struck right after Operation High Jump, that they had the technology that we were afraid of. It's probably better that we work in concert and keep them on the low, uh, low key, but uh, not to pursue them. And some of these documents that I saw when I was touring the Eden Hotel, said that if he were to escape and fake his own death, uh, this is one of the most likely places he would turn up. And in fact, the History Channel did a big show on it and interviewed people that were young chambermaids in the uh, mid to late 1940s who remember Hitler being there. I'm fairly confident that he did fake his own death and escaped to South America and lived out his natural life there. Uh, I also went down to San Carlos de Bariloche, which you may have uh, been alluding to, this area in uh, Patagonia that is absolutely beautiful. It looks just like Birch's Garden uh, with the coin sea in Birch's Garden. Looks like uh, the big lake there fronting this town, which is very Germanic in appearance. And uh, I spent uh, about a week there, uh, including looking for the Hitler Chateau uh, on the northern part of the lake and getting pretty close to it. Couldn't actually go onto the property, but I saw the bay where he had a home. He lived in the late 1940s. It actually had a seaplane. So if he had to make a hasty retreat, if uh, authorities were pounding down the door, he could get in the seaplane and just fly over the mountain range to Chile 
which was right next door. Uh, and so there are all kinds of stories like this and many other places too that we went to visit where fugitive Nazis had holed up and started with a new identity and just lived out their natural lives. So a bit of a travesty of justice that none of them were taken in and tried. Uh, only Adolf Eichmann, which I mentioned earlier, who was uh, captured in Buenos Aires and taken back to Israel and tried and put to death. Uh, and then they were told, do not come back and do that again. Because um, they were getting really close, and those Nazis in exile were very nervous that they might be next. Um, and they stopped. They didn't come back now, to capture anyone else. So it, it, it suggests to me that there is a third power that was the intelligence arm of the Third Reich, which became the Fourth Reich, and had hold up in South America, as well as the New Berlin base, which Admiral Dolentz, who had assumed power after... Uh, the Hitler suicide, who was the admiral who became chancellor and then basically uh, surrendered for Germany. But in 1943, he had made a comment that we have found an impregnable fortress for our Fuhrer, uh, alluding to the location of New Schwabenland in Antarctica. So that's pretty fascinating, too, that, that they would make these kind of statements suggesting that uh, Antarctica had this secret under ice base. Does this mean that Hitler was still in control and, and directing everything from his hiding place in South America and later Antarctica? Is that what was happening or did somebody else step in at that point? Of the Fourth Reich? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. He did have a prescription drug habit I think he was doing like crystal meth. You can see him at a couple of the rallies shaking uncontrollably. And he was kind of losing it at the end of the war mentally and physically. I would probably say Martin Bormann played a much bigger role in setting up this uh, third power, uh, the intelligence side, the money side, and um, funding projects buying into corporations that they wanted to control and basically running it from some of these large ranches down in South America. Uh, some of the information is coming out on them that, uh, that they are very Germanic still to this day, uh, very high tech security to get in and a lot of security. But uh, nonetheless, they're still down there. And while these people have long gone, uh, they may have ancestors or people sympathetic to the cause that may still uh, be running the show. This is actually going back to a, a documentary I saw a, a while back while I was living in Germany still. And I know there's a lot of evidence pro and against. What they say is that there's this town in Brazil or, you know, municipality that has, you know, more than average occurrence of twins. I believe it's called the area of um, Candido Godoy. And the first place where the mind wanders for most people is that Mengele is said to have landed there and continued some of his experiments, perhaps not as brutally as before. But do you think there's any, you know, backing to that? Well, I remember that movie, The Boys from Brazil, which was the cloning of Hitler. Uh, 
and giving these children as they were growing up the same circumstances that that Hitler had in his childhood. Um, it, it's very possible that, that this could have been a legacy of Mengele who did escape to South America and drowned in Brazil. He did die there uh, of... Yeah, not not being brought to justice, but just a, a drowning accident. Hmm. It was uh, really interesting when I was down there for four months, um, November beginning in November till the end of February of this year. Uh, in in January, there was this big news story that uh, the police had found a hidden door that led to a room where hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of authentic Third Reich, memorabilia, uniforms, medals, weapons, helmets, you name it, was found. Uh, some collector had just amassed a huge amount of these items and was hiding them clandestinely. So it's very much in the psyche of South American people, especially Brazil, Argentina, Chile, that this is what happened and then these guys escaped so when i did the tour of the uh, eden hotel i asked the tour guide I'm like well what do you think do you think hitler escaped the war and and was here he says oh absolutely he says i know people right here in town in la falda uh they're elderly now but they were young chambermaids and uh waiters who remember him and he knows them personally. He's like, yeah, they wouldn't lie. They they knew. So it's it's like us up here in America. We're the ones that have a hard time grappling with this. Down there, they're pretty much uh, resigned to the fact that uh, these guys did escape. And their legacy, in many ways, still lives on. Now, how likely is it that Hitler didn't just flee? But I've always felt that, you know, as politics go... I always felt that Hitler, that there was a good chance that he maybe cut a deal. And he was like, look, here's all my top scientists. Uh, here's uh, everything we did. Let me just go and I'll disappear and you'll never see me again. Do you think that that was possible? I definitely think they cut a deal right after Operation High Jump, which was repelled from this Queen Maudland area. And they were confronted with high technology that the Allies didn't have and didn't were, were very war-weary coming out of World War II. They did not want to go into something that uh, maybe they would lose a lot of, of men over. So striking a deal is very likely. And just Hitler just saying, yeah, leave us alone, leave me alone, the war's over. We're just going to bury ourselves in some of these uh, large ranches. You'll never hear from us. But of course, it's never that easy or that simple. And, of course, they got the big-name scientists that started NASA. Uh, they got the, the high-ranking intelligence officers, as well as the psychologists that came out of Germany that did the MK Ultra experiments here in this country in the 1950s. And you know why it's spelled MK Ultra? Because K is, um, that's how you can spell control in Germany. Absolutely correct. <laughs> It's a German spelling of mind control in German. And they were doing the mind control propaganda stuff in the 1930s over there. They got brought to this country and they did the MKUltra stuff in this country. So a lot of these programs just continued 
from Nazi Germany into uh, North and South America. Actually, before I, I move into North America here, I just wanted to ask you really quick. A few weeks ago, we did a really fascinating interview with an author of a book called uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's uh, War on Musicians and Activists. And in that book, we read how Nazi colonels that had fled to South America made a partnership with some of the drug lords and the drug producers, really our cartels from, from that area. Have you found any information or any evidence that that's what happened? Well, have you heard of the journalist named Gary Webb? He was doing investigative journalism about CIA doing drug running from Central and South America. And he was, quote, suicided mm. with two bullet shots to the head. Now, tell me how someone could possibly shoot themselves twice in the head. Right. Now, he was definitely murdered because he was exposing the CIA doing these drug running connections. Well, guess what? The CIA was a creation of paperclip Nazis that came over here, including Reinhard Galen, who, much like Werner von Braun, should have been at the Nuremberg trials as a war criminal. Instead, he got a new life and a nice salary and helped start the uh, espionage divisions spying on the Nazis. These guys gone. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, even though they're not with us anymore, they're still uh, a part of every everyday life. Brad, let me. Uh, I want to bring the conversation home, literally here home to the U.S. Because it's funny. I don't know how many. Pe I think over the years, people have become aware that the U.S. was quite sympathetic to the Nazis early on, even here in L.A. In the hills of Santa Monica, there they started building a little like a social club of sorts for Nazis to come and visit and hang out and have a great view of the Pacific uh, coast. And you can actually find the the remnants of this place here in the Santa Monica hills. I know it's been boarded up, and you know it's like trespassing, so I don't recommend too many people to go there. But if you do a Google search, you will find some photos, and it's all tagged up and dilapidated now. But the U.S. was uh, quite friendly to Germany before the war, and in your book you mention that Prescott Bush, who was father of uh, uh, George H.W. Bush and later and the grandfather of you know later President George W. Bush, he had helped with funding for the Nazi party, correct? Can you tell me a little bit about that link and just how friendly was the U.S. to, to this foreign government? Well, they were, and uh, Prescott Bush was president of Union Bank, and they were funding the Nazi party, as well as the Rockefellers with uh, Standard Oil was providing petroleum and other products they needed, and the Dulles Brothers, at Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. is named after uh, one of the Dulles brothers, who is the first CIA director. And as I mentioned, they have connections with the Third Reich Nazis that came over here in Project Paperclip. So there were a lot of sympathies, and there were many people who did not want to go to war with Germany. And that's why U.S. entered the war quite late um, and almost reluctantly declared war on Germany only 
after Germany declared war on us, so we kind of had to. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of sympathies, and that's probably why a lot of these uh, paperclip Nazis were brought over here uh, with the justification that the war's over. We need these guys to build up our armaments and uh, spy divisions, and, and, and let's go a little further with this mind control stuff to control the masses, and uh, the rest is infamy, basically. Right. One of the more fascinating uh, figures for me in all this is, of course, uh, uh, scientist Werner uh, von Braun. And it's funny, I mean, do a Google search and you will see photographs of this known Nazi. I, I'm not saying, I don't have any evidence to say this, that he ever pulled the trigger or did anything to, you know, like kill anybody, perhaps not directly, of course. Uh, however, there's photographs of him with Walt Disney, for example, or JFK. He wrote a number of books. He became almost like a sort of celebrity for getting the U.S. to the moon, whether you believe that the footage that we saw was the actual lunar surface or not. But under his direction, NASA accomplished a lot and they did a lot. It really blows my mind that we almost try to scrub history and mold it and, and sanitize it to excuse this, which, as you mentioned several times, it is an atrocity to let these people go free without any type of punishment. Cough, cough, 1984. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about Werner von Braun really quick, just to wrap up? Uh, like I said, he was probably the most famous former Nazi here in the U.S., wrote several books, and I believe his assistant in later years said that he kind of warned about the third card in this weird uh, Machiavellian plan. And this third card involved an alien invasion. Tell me a little bit That's about right. that. That's right. Yeah, his assistant, Carol Rosen, has been very outspoken in saying that Werner von Braun would say, well, there will be this threat from terrorists and we're going to have to have this war on terror, which has already come to pass. Then there will be the threat of asteroids, uh, and then we're going to have to put weapons in outer space to combat that. And then there will be this threat from ET invasion. And he said, they're all fake. They're all phony. It's all a false flag operation. It's to militarize space. And in fact, there are treaties that that is not allowed, but uh, people have been working around that. Uh, our our government and military and as well as the Russians and the Chinese putting weapons in space even though it is it is prohibited. I have a chapter in Future Esoteric called Weapons in Space and a gentleman named Bruce Gagnon, he uh, heads up this uh, whistleblower group that uh, makes us aware of what kind of weapons might be going up there, including these do weapons or the Thor the the hammer of God coming down these these titanium rails that can just drop and with gravity create an explosion in a crater, much like a nuclear bomb, but without any radiation, just from the force of impact. So people need to be aware of this. People need to know that uh, if we if space gets weaponized, it it's a total game changer, and um, it could be very very deadly with consequences that are very far-reaching. My gosh, it, it, I mean, it's it's amazing that you did mention Thor and 
the powers that people assign to this god. And I feel that that's a whole different topic. But I almost have just like a, a small little wrap-up question. And how do you talk to people? And I'm, I'm just saying friends, family members. How do you talk to these people about such subject matters without sounding completely crazy and actually being able to convince them of any type of way? I think the answer is you can't. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I've kind of given up on trying to do that. Just read my book. <laughs> I have many, many pieces of evidence that that you can research on your own to find that this is a, very much a reality. Uh, and it goes on. And that's why they're esoteric subjects, because the mainstream media is not going to tell you about it. Educational system won't. The government won't. So we have to uh, rely on ourselves and use the power of discernment that we all have to try to understand what is real and what could be disinformation. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Uh, for the folks at home that were listening in, we mainly focus on the chapter of the four rights in America from uh, Brad Olson's book, Future Esoteric. Definitely, definitely check that out. Fascinating, fascinating book. Uh, Brad, one more time. Why don't you tell people where they can get your books and where they can find you on social media? Sure. Yeah. Go to cccpublishing.com. You'll see all my books. I have the Google Book app so you can browse through the books on the site, order it off the site. Or uh, to some of these conferences I'm going to speak at the IONS Auditorium, May 16th, or Contact in the Desert. I have a table there. Uh, and I'll be signing books. I'll bring plenty of copies of Future Esoteric. Find me on uh, Esoteric Book Series on Facebook or CCC Publishing, Brad Olson on Facebook, or Sacred Places 108 Destinations is another page I manage on Facebook. Or you can uh, subscribe to me on YouTube called Esoteric Series. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing some of your listeners at Contact and seeing you guys again, too. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're looking forward to that. Last question, Brad. You've visited every continent. Where do you go from there? Are you going to buy one of these uh, private uh, flights to uh, to another planet that they're planning through Virgin Atlantic and uh, Elon Musk? I mean, where do you go from here? The final frontier. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Off planet. Yeah, that, that's the travel junkie's dream. Oh, look, it's a big world. Uh, I've only visited egypt in africa i got that whole continent to explore still need to get to uh, new zealand and uh dozens of other countries that i want to go to i really like to go to new places i haven't been to before so uh any future trips i plan will uh be to places that i haven't been yet that's incredible well we wish you the best of luck uh, we definitely admire your determination and your Books are definitely uh, some of our favorites. Uh, I, I know I speak for Genevieve as well. Uh, so definitely check out some of his books. Check out more about uh, Brad also on his websites. And yeah, if you're going to be at Contact in the Desert, he's going to be right there. Brad, thank you so much for uh, tonight. We covered a lot of ground, and uh, I can't think of anyone better to do that with than you. So thank you so much. Thank you well, so much. <laughs> thank you for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. And two hours went by real quick, so you know it's a good interview. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your evening, Brad. Thank you, too. And that was Brad Olson. Man, what can I say? I mean, that was probably one of the more in-depth 
conversations I've had on this topic with anyone. I'll I'll say that much. You know, it's interesting. You know, you're fascinated by it when when you have more questions that you wanted to ask, and you're like, mm, oh, can I fit that in? No, I'm not sure. Oh, I, I better you know consolidate my questions because. I can't fit all these 120 questions in. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as it happens, and I think there's a bit of that in the U.S., you know, when, a, when a, any government does work in secrecy, it just lends itself to a lot of speculation and theorizing by the many people. And Germany was quite secretive in a lot of the things they did. I like how you said quite, because... That is okay. Completely, <laughs> <laughs> very. I mean, least. the people themselves <laughs> didn't know what was happening in their own country Absolutely at the time. Absolutely not. No, and, they uh, have no idea. Yeah. So uh, again, fascinating topics that we discuss here tonight. Definitely get Brad Olson's book, Future Esoteric. That was just one chapter. I can't emphasize that enough. Like we literally covered one chapter. So can you imagine the rest of the book? We barely covered one chapter. Oh, barely. <laughs> so uh, yeah, definitely go grab yourself a copy. We'll be sure to post links along with the interview. I really have nothing else to say. So I'm just going to wrap up because I'm going to go and think about this for another five hours. That being said, we're going to go out with, uh, we were talking about Brazil earlier. We were indeed. And this apparent uh, twin town of sorts. Yeah, I think it was a municipality but that sounds less catchy <laughs> yeah, so this is how i'm gonna tie it in right i played a little bit of ramstein during the break mm -hmm. and the only time i've seen ramstein live uh soulfly was opening for them and obviously soulfly was uh, the front man as the same front man for the band sepultura from brazil mm -hmm. so just to tie it all in i'm gonna play a little bit of sepultura i feel like i don't play them enough here so uh, this song is called Attitude, one of my favorite tracks off of their album Roots. Probably one of the standards as far as metal music goes, in my opinion. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy that just as much as you enjoy the interview. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTRRadio.com. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash WTRRadio. Hit the bell, hit the like, let us know what you think. And, uh, of course, we have iTunes, Stitchers, and all that good stuff. Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Follow her and uh, check out her show here on Thursday nights. Boy, I'm trying to go as fast as I can because I know time has run out. Enjoy a little bit of Sepultura. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then. Bye. <laughs> West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.